and welcome to Edie's Sustainable Business Covered podcast. But a much catchier title will be the International Women's Day special for 2020. Yes, it's that time of year again, and this year specifically it's March 8th, where we celebrate the achievements of women around the world, be they cultural, political, economic, social, personal, and in our case, environmental. It's also a good time to reflect on how much more work needs to be done to achieve SDG 5 gender equality. So a time for celebration and reflection, but also future planning and calls to action, and telling the angry men in your life that there is an International Men's Day and that it is on November 19th. Thank you very much. Coming up on today's episode, we will be speaking to Sophie Walker, JLL UK's Head of Sustainability, about the importance of role models. I mean, I definitely think there's a moment of change for senior sustainability professionals who are migrating. I actually changed my LinkedIn profile the other day. After many a year, I described myself as a sustainability professional. I actually thought, right, do I now describe myself as a sustainability leader? Ashley O'Neill, Hilton's Energy and Compliance Manager for the Europe, Middle East and Africa re- region, who's both a mentor and a mentee, working to get more women into the notoriously male-heavy energy and engineering space. Won't be alone in having the experience of attending an event or a conference within the energy sector, looking around and the audience being 90% male. Um, and it is quite a dated stereotype of the industry. Emily Penn, director and co-founder of Expedition, a series of all-female sailing voyages to raise awareness of and solutions for ocean plastics. The more I look at this issue, the more I realise that there's not one solution that's going to solve plastic in our ocean, but that the great news is there are literally hundreds of solutions and we need all of them. And Dr Abigail Stevenson, director at the Mars Global Food Safety Centre. Never to put myself in a box and think I'm not good enough or I'm not sure I can do that. To, to really have a, an, an attitude, a kind of, I, can, I can try and do this. So do stick around to hear their insight because we have a lot of treats for you in store today. Um, and for the sake of balance, I am joined by a real life man, um, our content editor, Matt Mace. Yep, certified real life man, uh, as it says uh, on my on my CV. Um, pleasure to be here and in in a different different seat. I'm, I'm I've given up the MC in for this episode. <laughs> no, you deserve you deserve a break. Um, but how how have you been doing? And what do you want to tell tell everyone that's listening? What's been keeping you busy? I've been doing I've been doing fine actually. Um, it's I suppose it's uh, kind of relatively calm period for for the ed team right now um in the sense that we're not putting too much on our own plates in terms of our own events right now um the forums kind of been and gone we're still quite a way away from net zero live and a few bespoke events that we are looking to hold um, so it's it's nice just to get my feet back under the news desk do some more writing than i otherwise uh, would and I mean yeah there's been some huge announcements at a policy level so nice to keep on top of that really. Mm. I'm going to press you then so you definitely have time to sit with me and ponder the current state of gender equality in the professions that we that we cover right? Uh, yeah I can I can ponder away. <laughs> Fantastic um, obviously we have four great interviews to bring you but before we do I thought it was really important just to put them um, in in context, um, and for that we looked at the biennial corporate responsibility and sustainability salary survey, which is a really good resource resource on this. Um, the last iteration was in twenty eighteen, so the next one's due out later this year. Um, but essentially, 
during the process of that survey, the researchers found out that women actually are the majority um, in, in all generic categories except for director level roles at consultancies. So across this profession globally, and we're talking about energy, CSR and sustainability here, um, they make up 51% of, of the profession population, um, which is great considering that, that women were 47% of the world's working population. So gender parity has technically been realised in the sector. Um, but as with any, any profession, really, there, there was also found to be a hefty gender pay gap. Um, women working in CSR full-time in the UK were found to be earning an average of 12000 less per year than their male male counterparts that's roughly in line with the national gender pay pay gap yeah i mean <laughs> i think i think the the pay gap's the thing isn't it i think a lot of businesses are are doing a lot better certainly around csr which i think is is perhaps um a bit of a, an easier way in for women compared to energy which i know we're going to touch on uh later with one of the interviews um but i think there's, there's, there's having gender parity and then there's having equal pay for both the genders based on their job role functions. Um, and I think I think sustainability as a function is quite interesting because you look two decades back, it probably didn't exist. It was probably a kind of add-on or, or certainly anyone that was working in kind of HR or, or very human-centric or charity-focused work probably got, probably got a lot of the sustainability stuff pushed on them as it became a bit more mainstream. Mm. Um, and it's it's quite interesting then that that's enabled quite a uh, interesting balance or in fact a, a very small majority for, for women in, in those functions. Mm. I think where it is missing are those um, those real women leaders uh, in this area. And that's not to say that they're not leading on it, but they perhaps haven't given the opportunity that men have to lead on it. Yeah. I find I find it quite interesting that if you look across the pond of the US, a lot of the big corps, you look at your Nikes, you look at your L'Oreal's. Timberland. Yeah, they're, they're headed up by, by women. So they, I don't know, the US seem to be doing something right. I'm not quite sure what that is, but uh, uh, hopefully we can we can replicate that in, in some way. But it's it's becoming better, I think. Um, I think if you look at uh, ED as, as an event, it's, it's much easier now than it was perhaps three or four years ago four or five years ago to get much more gender parity on our panels for example Mm -hmm. Uh, it was and it can be quite a challenge um but i think more businesses want to talk about it um more businesses have women who are able to talk about it so it's yeah i think as a sector you probably compare it to the national averages across other it's it's performing quite well but the the pay gaps the, the thing that needs to be addressed yeah, I'd agree with that. And I'd say that obviously with the pay gap comes the, the seniority um, gap. So looking at the Office for Nat- National Statistics figures, so we've got 51% of sustainability professionals are women, but women account for just 29% of board level seats. So it's whether they're in the profession and just start, starting out. And, and when I say starting out, will they get to finish that journey in-house? Um, is something that's been brought a lot and if they are a leader are they being treated as one by the board mm. um, is a big question I know last year we spoke to women in sustainability on this and they talked about how they just have a lot of evidence of women who join the group when they're in an in-house career um, and then after they start a family or maybe want some more flexibility just can't find it and have to start their own ventures and consultancies mm-hmm. and it's inspirational to see women-led businesses but the salary survey shows that these kind of jobs typically pay seven grand less than in-house. 
Um, and that's a problem not just for the individuals, but for the businesses that are, are losing that talent as well. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a little bit backwards, the, I suppose, the traditional approach to maternity leave in particular. But I think, you know, Boris Johnson said he's taking his time off for his um, paternity leave. So maybe that's the start of saying, although, I mean, he's taken more days off than I care to care to count right now but if it's if it's happening at the top then perhaps that that balance of of that um that work-life aspect will become much more affected in the gender debate which should hopefully boost boost those wages as a result Mm -hmm. and we will be talking about that throughout our interviews of course um and i'm aware we've been on a little bit of a ramble and a little bit of a downer Um, So I think we should probably take a break and hear from the inspirational women in this profession themselves. Right, so our first interview on this International Women's Day special of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast will be JLL's Head of Sustainability for the UK, Sophie Walker. Um, Those of you who are keen ED readers will be familiar with Sophie's name and with JLL more broadly because in the last year we've heard all about the company setting a net zero target for 2030. Um, its ambition to reach 100% renewable electricity by the end of this year. Um, And we've also had JLL on recently for a case study masterclass on these topics. Um, So today I'm lucky to have Sophie on the line to get a little bit more personal and look at her career and role in driving these these transitions. So how are you doing, Sophie? I'm great, thank you very much, Sarah. Glad to hear it. Um, and yeah, as I mentioned, we've we've had a look at sort of the business strategy and now we're honing in on the women that are driving these strategies. Um, and those of you who are listening and know Sophie will be aware that she's been with JLL in the sustainability team for more than more than 12 years. Um, but I would really like for you, Sophie, to provide a little bit more information about your career so far and how you came in to be in your current role for, for our listeners today. Okay, so I might take you right back, as many people do, to when I was eight years old, <laughs> when I had, I suppose, the equivalent of my sustainability awakening. Um, I, uh, my father was in the army, we moved back and forth between Germany and the UK a lot, and I remember really clearly moving back to the UK, um, aged eight, and having a moment of conversation with my parents about, where are the cycle paths? Why, there's no, why is there no recycling? Why can't I take the tram to school? Why do we have to drive? Sort of just these sort of moments of, of childhood awakening about how it was so different in different places mm. in terms of essentially environmental sustainability. And, and I think I had my first moment of awakening then, which fed through into, you know, all the classic things that one might have done as a school child, certainly not quite Greta, but setting up environmental clubs, um, trying to raise environmental consciousness in school, generally getting really impassioned and enthused about the topic, but always... Not, not necessarily defining at that point as a career, career trajectory for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, so I, I went to university and I studied English and modern languages, including Russian, and I had a year abroad in Russia where, in particular, for part of it, I worked for a human rights organisation focusing on translating Russian into English, particularly focusing on torture in what was then the conscript Russian army. So I had a fairly strong, I suppose, exposure to the human rights and social side of sustainability whilst I was still a university student Um, and then in leaving university found my way in the end into politics working for an MP in parliament where I gradually sort of naturally my natural instinct was always to work want to work on sustainability related policy issues be it at that point it was crossrail through to local planning concerns 
all, all whilst um, he was the Treasury Select Committee MP, so I was also learning quite a bit about wholesale financial markets and services, and I can read a Bank of England inflation report back to front cover. Um, <laughs> but I kept, just naturally found myself very clearly wanted to migrate to an environmental field. Mm-hmm. So when I left Parliament, I um, took did a Master's in Environmental Management for Business at Cranfield, and which was an out, really, really outstanding educational opportunity. And I came out of there and I joined a small organization called what was then Upstream. And two months after joining, I found myself brought up by an organization called JLL, which is where I now work 12 years later, or more than 12 years later. So I've really only worked in one one organization truly in terms of what we would call a sustainability career. And I've grown through the organization, being given fantastic opportunities along the way, starting off as a consultant, um, really, and then working my way to delivering strategy advice to clients around their sustainability strategies across the world. And then in 2015, I moved from running effectively the strategy consulting element of our sustainability practice to this broader role, which I now do as the UK Head of Sustainability, where we've set it up um, to cover all of our service provision for real estate services to our clients, as well as all of our internal operations. So I think we were fairly early as an organization in terms of really seeking to embed sustainability fully across all core business operations, particularly in a professional services context. Mm -hmm. And I think this role has evolved over time for me, but with, I might add, two uh, years of maternity along the way, so I've had two fantastic covers on the way, Um, but it's evolved more recently. The role has become a board role as of the 1st of January. So definitely the role is pivoting, becoming a lot more instrumental, and I have a growing and flourishing sustainability team, something like uh, coming up for 100 sustainability professionals now in the UK business, all part of a broader network of sustainability champions. I'm sure there are a lot of people who are listening who would die to have a team of 100. I know we have a lot of people who are sort of one person, person teams that will be listening enviously. Um, And I love what you said there about your role, um, about how your role has evolved and sort of become broader and more recently sort of become a board level Um, role as well so I wanted to get your thoughts on whether you've noticed that evolution that pivoting of roles um, changing for other women in sustainability functions so either in your sector or or elsewhere I know that on the board topic um, specifically a lot of people will have been following H&M's decision to appoint former sustainability professional um, as as a CEO I mean, I definitely think there's a moment of change for senior sustainability professionals who are migrating. I actually changed my LinkedIn profile the other day. After many a year, I described myself as a sustainability professional. I actually thought, right, do I now describe myself as a sustainability leader? I probably do, because that's an important kind of moment of change when you're asked to take a broader business leadership role, actually, in becoming a board member. And I think that's a big change for, for me personally, and I, but I also think that's the change that the profession's going on, that it's much more, much less about advocacy, much more about broader long-term business strategy and the execution and delivery of that strategy. But also recognising that sustainability professionals, men or women, women or men, have uh, a huge degree sort of set of skills that they can deploy to any given business challenge Mm. be it stakeholder management long-term macro trend analysis pivoting complex data and turning that into short-term solutions interface between the public affairs public communications and then 
internal delivery within business. There's a huge kind of variety of skill sets that a sustainability professional or leader has equipped themselves with that um, are really useful to any board it, it, with portfolio roles on the horizon. So I think we're definitely at the start of a, a pivot. And actually, I think that all range of organisations could start to benefit from greater sustainability skill sets on you know, boards, trusts of schools, all sorts of ranges of organisations, because I think you know, there's a lot that we can bring to bear as the profession. Mm. And what about the... Trend? Suppose, oh, sorry, carry on. And I suppose specifically, uh, there was a question, Sarah, you asked about the, the role of women within that. I mean, I think that, you know, I, I've been lucky, very lucky, that I've always had really strong female sustainability role models in my organization, more senior to me initially, that I learned from and was inspired from. So we um, have always had, to be honest, not far off 50-50 gender split, but that uh, maybe unusually compared to other sustainability teams, we've been at 50-50 pretty much at each tier of management the whole way through my time. Mm -hmm. So there's always been role models I suppose I've been in myself in a leadership position for quite some time, but I'm part of a pool of female senior leaders and male senior leaders. So there's never been that kind of conceptual holding back that this wasn't about gender balance all the way through. Mm. No, that's good to hear because I know it's very easy to get focused on, on the bad the bad stuff here, both in terms, terms of the pivoting role, like, oh, we'll have to learn new skills, I'll be ready for this. Um, and then to look at how far we have left to go. But as you've said there, there are organisations where this journey is is quite far along. And on that note, I wanted to ask um, how you specifically and then the sustainability team at JLL and the business more widely is encouraging women into the sector um, and to ask sort of what support you would like to see to help scale scale that up but because we know that no business is an island and they might need help from other businesses government policy on things like education and work or support from non-profits to 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 take a leadership stance on this the sustainability teams at JLL and we're, we're a number of teams and I don't have a hundred people doing my work just <laughs> they're servicing on a huge amount of clients along the way but it's just a broad a broad pool for for us to to create shared sustainability opportunities and it's really powerful dynamic army I suppose delivering change powerful dynamic army of change agents but in terms of within that there are obviously have been a number of uh, female sustainability role models for me um, both within the sustainability team and then more broadly within um, JLL as a firm we're quite lucky in that we've had a, a female chair of our global board Sheila Penrose for quite some time um, with Chicago listed organization um, sorry US listed organization and uh, we've had good gender diversity and, and variety of diversity at global board level uh, including NEDS for quite some time and then there's also been a number of personal role models that I've drawn from along the way and I think role models are really important I've spoken about this quite a lot I do think you learn from those around you and I think it's really critical for JLL and but all for all manner of organizations to to profile and to and to support those role models because those are essentially the people that we learn from and I think we are um, but that isn't role models aren't enough you've got to have all of the structural policy changes in place both at a company level but also society-wide so, you know, JLL has been exemplary for me in terms of, 
you know, my two years of maternity leave, I had roles, I had people cover my role during that period of time. I've also had a sabbatical, I have access to flexible working. We have lots of examples of flexible working that, that has been deployed for um, women and men to support with their caring responsibilities at home. Um, and certainly those policies have played an important role in my retention at JLL, if I'm honest. Um, and our approach to flexible working, which again is really important for any um, any generation, but in particular, you know, I think our younger generation coming through, flexibility is absolutely one of the key criteria for why they're interested in joining an organisation. And would not be, I, you know, a number of our teams wouldn't be prepared to work for us if we couldn't offer flexible working. So I think flexibility is key. Um, we also have some targeted and specific talent programs. So we have um, what we call our women in, leadership, women in Leadership cohort at the moment who receive media and panel training to assist them to kind of more confidently put themselves out there to self-advocate, to feel confident as spokespeople. Um, and then we have a range of what I'd call more classic HR recruitment and retention policies where we seek to remove unconscious bias as, and conscious bias as much as possible from any decisions that are more structural within the organization in terms of how we recruit and retain. So we, like many organizations, have a huge kind of array of different tools and policies and processes that we're deploying, but a lot of it is about that human touch in terms of seeing people around you that you really believe in, that have had careers that feel valuable to you, feel like the kind of careers that make sense for you in terms of flexibility, in terms of balance with family commitments or all manner of other commitments. And I think, you know, that's what we certainly have do and try to do at JLL. We could certainly do more. We will be doing more. And then I think more, more broadly out there in the industry, I mean, I, I feel like sustainability has been one of the really strong sectors actually in terms of profiling both strong men and women. It's still desperately different at the bottom versus the top. I think in, if you look sexually and across the, you know, the full profession, but I do think there's really, I, I see lots of female role models around me, clients in particular, you know, important heads of sustainability or heads of ESG at client organizations that are really inspiring both men and women. But I, there are plenty of female role models in, in my sector around me who I learn from when I'm inspired by. So I think there's, there's lots of really fantastic change and progression um, on the horizon, but certainly could, is more needed to be done, could more be done, certainly. Oh, fantastic. Thank you for that. For that. I think it's a great in, um, overview of um, that, as you said, the sort of people level magic of just have, having someone to look up to, but how that simply isn't isn't enough to meet to meet to sorry to rise to the scale um, of the challenges that are needed um, without broader policy in place at a business level and at a national level as well. So thank you so much um, for your for your insight, Sophie. Thank you very much, Sarah. So thank you to Sophie for providing a bit more information there on her personal career and branching out into best practice advice on supporting women at all stages of their careers. Sophie talked a bit there about role models and I thought this would be a good time to reflect on our female sustainability role models and I think I would kick myself if I had finished this episode without mentioning the name Mary Robinson, <laughs> um, former UN Human Rights Envoy, Climate Change Envoy, 
um, former president of Ireland and now podcast host, a, a CV I'm not sure many of us could could live up to. Um, but I wanted to highlight her more than any of those roles, but because she's the reason that climate justice is now a serious, implementable concept rather than a, a silly idea that it was dismissed as by most developed nations in the 1980s and, and prior to that. Um, and then I also know that a lot of people will probably be listening and expecting me to say Greta. <laughs> because how could you not? But I wanted to big up some another young climate activist just to highlight the fact that she is not alone and she is not the only one. Um, I was really fortunate last year to meet Scarlett Westbrook, who is really involved with youth activism on climate change, air pollution and racial equality. And she heads up a lot of work on that in Birmingham and just makes me jealous because she regularly writes for The Independent and she got her A-levels at 15 <laughs> She's the youngest person in the UK with a politics A-level and the youngest person in the UK to get accepted onto a politics um, university course. So I guess there is hope for policy um, in the future when, when, when you look at people like that. Um, but at the risk of me rambling on, I wanted to ask Matt who his female sustainability heroes are and, and why as well. Yeah, absolutely. I gave, I gave this some thought, but the answer came quite obviously quite easily to me um I don't have a poster of this woman on my wall but I don't have any posters on my wall but um I want to I want to kind of take our listeners back to um kind of early 2010 there was a bit of gloom around climate policy the kind of um the failed COP15 climate conference in Copenhagen kind of soured the idea that nations didn't really care about climate change um and then uh the UN Secretary General comes in and appoints uh, Christiana Figueres uh, as the new executive secretary uh, for the UNFCCC. And I think if you look at July 2010 to March 2020 and how much the global climate sphere has come on, um, she, was, she was just influential in, in getting the Paris Agreement, not just off the ground, but ratified mm. um, to the point where the only major nation that's pretty much going to pull it out is the US. And even then, yeah. they've had states and cities come into kind of collectively she's kind of omnipresent as well isn't it it's Mm. not like she's ratified this and then gone on her very way yeah (laughs) gone off she's so involved in the conversation even now and even has a new book out this this month yeah and i I think what she's just a great enabler really like she like said came in got the paris agreement over the line um which was obviously a massive effort involving a lot of people but yeah she was kind of the architect behind that and now she's championing a lot of the time on the SDGs that's a real kind of um, progress area for her definitely looking forward to reading her new book as it comes out so um, I think there are very few people just in life that have done (laughs) as much for a particular uh, topic as Christiana Figueres has for climate action. No it's hard to argue with that but um, the reason I'm talking about role models really as well as it being an important part of this day is to segue neatly into the second interview because role models are so important for those in the early stages of their careers um, I think and we were really fortunate through 30 Under 30 to meet Ashley, our next interviewee, that's Ashley O'Neill who is the Energy and Compliance Manager at Hilton EMEA. Um, After interning at DEC, rest in peace, um, (laughs) during her studies, Ashley joined Hilton as an energy analyst in 2015 and since then she's really progressed pretty quickly into a senior role Um, But the thing that I love catching up with Ashley about when I see her is women in her subsector. She is both a mentor and a mentee and she works tirelessly outside of the remit of her day job to foster these communities and connections. 
So Matt, I think you managed to grab Ashley for a discussion. Would you, did you want to introduce this one? So we heard from Sophie there how important it is to have um, women in kind of senior positions so that the uh, the younger workers, people that are kind of less far on on their, their business journey have a role model to look up to. And right now we're going to be speaking uh, to a woman who is perhaps still in her infancy uh, when it comes to her business career. That's not me saying that um, she's inexperienced, but the fact that she is uh, much younger. Ashley O'Neill is the Senior Energy and Compliance Manager at Global Hotelier Hilton. Uh, and the reason we know her so well is she's a member of ED's 30 Under 30 class of 2019. Ashley, how are you? Long time no speak. Yeah, I'm great. Thank you. Really good. Yeah, been off to a great start this year. Lots of interesting projects to get involved in. Great stuff. And yeah, I mentioned your uh, your class of 2019. We, we've just unveiled our class of 2020. So I suppose you're, you're alumni in that sense. But um, I think this is proof that we're not just going to kind of um, park you the the original 30 to, to the side. We still want to get very much in, involved uh, with you and what you're up to. Um, so perhaps it's a good uh, place to start for our listeners who perhaps uh, are unaware of you and, and Hilton in relation to energy compliance. What, what's a kind of, uh, what does your remit involve at the company? Yes, so my role sits within the engineering and new openings team for Europe, Middle East and Africa. And we support over 250 managed hotels in over 50 countries. And my role specifically is responsible for energy procurement and contracting across the region, which involves performance tracking, target setting for utility consumption and costs. And this means that I can play a part in reducing our environmental impact as part of Hilton's 2030 goals both whilst driving cost savings and delivering value for our owners. And another aspect of my role is managing environmental compliance, legislation and reporting across key areas such as energy, carbon and packaging waste. Great stuff. So it sounds like there is quite a mix to, to keep you um, busy. I appreciate before that, before we start this conversation, you said you don't like the word busy, but um, I'm struggling to think of another word for something as broad <laughs> as uh, as what you do there. Um, and yeah. And at risk of, of uh, repeating the kind of questions that you were asked as part of um, your membership to the, the 30 and the 30, but I think it'd be great for our listeners to get a, an idea of how you kind of found yourself where you are today, um, where your interest in, in this kind of field came from. Yeah, definitely. So throughout school, I was always passionate about the environment and the climate, but I also had a real love for math. So I chose to study meteorology and climate science at university. Um, I felt that this brought together everything that I was interested in throughout my A-levels. But it was during my degree that I expanded my knowledge into the energy and climate change field. And I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to undertake an internship at the former Department of Energy and Climate Change. And that was my first taste of work experience in the working world. And it helped me to focus my dissertation on the impact of climate change and the UK's energy mix. And through all of this, I knew that the energy profession was where I wanted to be. So after I graduated five years ago, I was delighted to obtain an entry-level role at Hilton as energy analyst. Um, and the role really provided everything that I was looking for and combined my passion for data analytics with my interest in energy and climate management. And uh, did you ever envision when you were writing that dissertation that you'd get to the point where, where energy and, and climate change was uh, such a, a kind of focal point for, for mainstream media and the public? I mean, I always hoped it would it would go that way, but obviously didn't really expect it to happen so quite so quickly, to be honest. Um, I've been really lucky that I've, in such a short space of time, I've seen both sides of it. I was at university, as I mentioned, graduated five years ago, and I was really, you know, a nerd, 
whatever they whatever they said, tree huggers, really celebrating the environment and preaching about climate change. But it's done a complete 360 now. I mean, there's still the skeptics out there, but in just those five years, it's really changed and it's so high on the agenda, as we've mentioned. So it's great. Good stuff. And I mean, we've we've been working with the energy industry at EDFET for a long time, and um, I think we are. Tr- trying uh, we are starting to see a bit kind of more diversity there but um some stats that i kind of found in in the kind of build up to this was uh, only five percent of executive board seats in uk-based company are held by women in the energy industry uh 61 of companies have no women at all on their board and just 14 percent of the energy workforce are uh, women do you, are you seeing kind of anecdotally a, a kind of increase in workforce diversity in in the sector um, I think it's coming, but I'm not sure if it's actually there yet. And I mean, I won't be alone in having the experience of attending an event or a conference within the energy sector, looking around and the audience being 90% male. Um, and it is quite a dated stereotype of the industry that it's starting to break, but we're not we're not quite there yet, I'd say. I think sustainability is a much more open industry, um, which is great. But I think in terms of energy and engineering, there's still a lot of work to do to get to where it needs to be, because as you've said, it's such a disparity at the minute. Um, what, in terms of work to do, I mean, it sounds like there's some barriers to overcome. What, what, would, what would you kind of say is the main kind of barrier that, that's, that's perhaps stopping that, that, um, that, that gender balance being a bit better? I think it's the perception. I think there's a huge perception around particularly engineering, which is where energy management tends to fall into, that it is for males. And traditionally, it has been a male-based industry, um, maybe because of the technical capacity of it. But that's not to say that females and women can't be as technically capable as the men can be with the right training and the right resources. Maybe that's that's the way to go with the training there and the resources available to those, those people. And I mean, we I've, I've spoken to many uh if it's sustainability professional, energy professional, or someone kind of working in the kind of trade body, trade body association on this, and I think I think a key message around diversity in general, and that's not just for women, but in terms of uh, age and ethnicity, is that diversity kind of brings new ideas into into the board and will perhaps really help with um, the broader kind of climate battle and decarbonisation, perhaps give businesses a new way of of thinking. Um, would, would you agree with that sentiment that actually by kind of improving the workforce diversity in the sector, decarbonisation across energy, across businesses and nations could be sped up? Yeah, absolutely. I think, as you've mentioned, 2019 was a huge year for the environment and sustainability, and we're really on the tip of making a difference now. Um, But to take the next steps and achieve decarbonisation, tackle the issues we face, we need to innovate and we need to change the way we do things. And this has got to come from having a diverse workforce. Um, we need collaboration across key departments of businesses, whether that be in engineering and operations, to energy management, to corporate responsibility, finance, and also at senior leadership level. And we also need to engage with other industries to share best practices and with policymakers to drive change. And all of this requires passionate individuals with strong communication skills and the confidence to ask questions and solve problems. So I think diversity yeah, is really important here. No, I completely agree with that. And we, we saw um, some figures up on the ED website not too long ago. I think it's a quarter of young people. Um, obviously, that doesn't take into account gender, but a quarter of young people want to work in some capacity on something that 
um, helps contribute to climate change. So, and yes, it seems like we've got this this pipeline of, of young women that are really kind of looking to get into whether it's specifically uh, energy or in-house businesses um, or just sustainability more general. It feels like there's a pipeline growing. So how would you encourage more women to perhaps come into, into the sector and, and energy the way you operate in? This is something that I'm really passionate about because I've been really fortunate in my career that I've always felt valued by my colleagues and those in my network and gender's never really been a barrier for me. Um, the energy management industry provides a career that's very challenging and offers the opportunity to really make a difference on these important issues like sustainability and climate change, which make it really exciting. Um, but I think it's important that we share our success stories and become role models to others, which is why I jumped at the chance to be a part of this podcast. As we've mentioned as well, I'm proud to have been part of the Easy 30 Under 30 class of 2019, which has given me even more of a platform to highlight the importance of diversity in our sector. And I think that from hearing the stories of women already doing great things, we might spark that interest into in others to pursue a career in the energy sector, give confidence to those that might be afraid to take the leap, and also provide advice to those starting out in their careers. Um, at Hilton, we celebrate International Women in Engineering Day every year, and we have our own network to engage our female engineers in being proud of their achievements and to support and inspire others, inspire others whether that be by sharing technical solutions or giving advice on career progression. So I think it's important that we encourage not just women, but also young people, as we've mentioned, to consider a career in the energy management sector and remove the stigma in the next generation that the energy industry is targeted at males, because this, for me, is the best way to achieve a more balanced, diverse workforce in the future. Um, and you've mentioned that you know there is a pipeline of ambitious students, perhaps, that want to enter the industry. So I think we've got a duty to engage with these students through university talks, mentoring schemes, and offer work experience or internships where possible, because this is where we can have a really positive impact. And in terms of that engagement, then, if you, if you were able to get the chance to engage with them and, and perhaps offer them some advice that you, you perhaps learned from yourself, what, what, you know, what message would you send to them? Okay, so my advice to someone considering a career in energy management would be that if you bring your passion, ideas and willingness to learn, your role can really become whatever you make of it. So from engineering to corporate responsibility, the industry is growing and it requires enthusiasm and strong transferable skills. So I'd say don't be afraid to question the norm and take risks, but also understand that things can often take time. So it's important to be patient and let the results speak for themselves. And as part of the 30 under 30, I'm really proud to have contributed to the 2020 playbook for sustainability and energy professionals, which brings together the group's advice and tips in a 10-point guide. One of my favorite tips from the playbook is all around building your personal brand. And this involves understanding what your skills, passions, and key values are, how you communicate your vision, and then choosing the right opportunities for you. Actually, that's a that's brilliant. I mean, I didn't even have to pay you for the playbook plug either, which is always uh, <laughs> nice. Not that I do pay guests to plug um, yeah, no. at all. Um, but yeah, and obviously you were part of that co-creation and um, having been a kind of fly on the wall for all of that, it was uh, it was great to see the energy uh, of of the uh, the younger generation of, of sustainability energy experts really come together there, and we'll certainly uh, add a link to that playbook uh, in the article accompanying this podcast. Um, actually, I'm going to use the 
the B word again, but you are incredibly busy, so I won't keep you for, for too much <laughs> longer. Um, but it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Well, thanks once again, Ashley. As you said, a lot of optimism there, but also a lot of specific information about specific skills in this energy and engineering subsect, which has been plagued by this historical um, gender challenge. And we're now going to switch to someone else with a completely different but equally specific skill set, which is Emily Penn. Um, Having a quick look on her website and social media, she describes herself as, and I'm going to have to take a breath here, Skipper, ocean advocate, environmentalist, public speaker, advisor and director. So completely different skill set to Ashley, Sophie or probably anyone I've ever met, um, but crucial to meeting the swathes of challenges facing our oceans. Um, In case anyone needs a reminder about these, and sorry to bring the mood down again, seem to be saying that a lot this episode, um, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation has predicted there's going to be more plastics than in the ocean than fish by 2050 by weight. And if 2050 seems a bit too far out to comprehend, by 2030, WF says that 104 million tonnes of plastics will leak into ecosystems, mainly water-based ones. Um, it's not just plastics, though. Since the 70s, the oceans have absorbed more than 90% of the extra heat in the atmosphere generated by man-made activity and about a quarter of human-made CO2 emissions, according to the IPCC. So that's causing a huge array of problems from coral bleaching and biodiversity loss to to sea level rise. And just reading those stats is enough to make anyone um, freeze up and feel that they can't make a difference. Um, Instead of giving in to these feelings, Emily co-founded Expedition, a community interest company that organises all women sailing trips around the world, exploring the impact of plastics and other toxics in our ocean. Um, It launched six years ago, but round the world, its series of 30 voyages, whereby 300 women will be sailing across the world over a two-year period, has just started. So it's clearly the perfect time to catch up with Emily about the initiative and about women in ocean conservation, restoration and research more widely. Matt, I know you carried this one out, so was there anything you wanted to add before, before we press play? Um, not, no, not massively. Um, yeah, I managed to go up to central London last week and meet, uh, meet Emily. We were, we were kind of in, uh, the auditorium, the cafe, it was a little bit too loud. So we ended up having to walk around in, in, in that building for a <laughs> long time, ended up in the gym, um, and in a room that all it had in it was, uh, some, was a you know, table tennis table. Um, so it was a nice little sit down on the floor with Emily for 15 minutes to, to go into a lot of that, to get a bit more, uh, behind that issue, um, so this actually came about through SAP, the the software company. Um, I'm sure readers would be aware of our Plastics Cloud. Uh, that sorry, their Plastics Cloud initiative, which is on the site. If you if you're not aware, I do recommend checking that out. It's a kind of uh, uh, value chain look at how plastics are are integrated globally. Um, they have they have uh, Natasha Pergel, the global sustainability lead there taking part in that expedition and they they were the ones that were able to set this up so thank you to them for that and yeah thank you to emily for for providing the time to sit down in a weird table tennis room and discuss this so let's let's go into that interview uh, now so we've already heard from some in-house sustainability and energy professionals for this podcast uh, but the last segment is somewhat different 
Those listening may have heard of Expedition, and that's spelt with two X's, which has been set up uh, by skipper and ocean advocate Emily Penn. If that name sounds familiar, it's because Emily has uh, taken part in Sky Ocean Rescue Campaign, the Waste to Wealth Summit, which was obviously kind of headlined by Prince Charles, and appeared on many major news outlets like the BBC um, and Sky to discuss Expedition. Uh, I'm sure appearing on the Sustainable Business Cover podcast will eclipse all of them, no doubt. Uh, so, Emily, thanks so much uh, for taking time out of what I realise is a ridiculously hectic schedule to meet me today. <laughs> Not at all. And, uh, yeah, we've kind of gone at a makeshift podcast studio in central London. It's not quite uh, the beach, which would have been apt to discuss this today, but uh, we're hoping for no disruptions. There's a table tennis um, table behind us and trains overhead, so hopefully there's not too much background noise, but that should be fine. Uh, yeah, the reason it would have been great to kind of have this chat at the beach is that you and your team have invited um, 300 women to sail, I think this is right, 38,000 nautical miles in what I've just been told is 31 stages. Um, And the aim of that initiative is to kind of explore the science and solutions behind ocean plastic uh, and to kind of create this kind of wave of ambassadors to combat ocean pollution. Exactly, yeah, there's probably three main aims. One is around the scientific research where we're really driving to find out where do the solutions lie on land by discovering what plastic is actually in the ocean and where's it coming from. Uh, The second is all around storytelling. You know, our ocean covers 70% of our planet. It's so far out of sight and out of mind. So it's about getting people out there to actually see with their own eyes what's going on. And the third, as you say, it's about the women themselves who go on to be incredible ambassadors for the cause. And so far, we have had 70 women on board from 26 different nationalities around the world and from all different sectors and skill sets within society. I mean, that's that's amazing, pretty much. That's so much um, planning just to get that off the ground, I would have thought, and to you know, continue the momentum. I've got to ask, though, where, you know, where did this kind of idea come from? At what point did you say that, yes, actually, a kind of army of 300 women, turning them into ocean ambassadors, that's exactly how we should do this? <laughs> Funnily enough, I didn't wake up one morning <laughs> with the idea. Um, it actually began about 12 years ago. I trained as an architect and I had a job lined up in Australia, but I wanted to get there without taking an aeroplane. So I ended up taking a boat across the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean and saw plastic a thousand miles from land and on these little tiny uninhabited islands and it just didn't make any sense. And so it's been a journey ever since that to first work out how you could clean it up and more recently really how you solve it and how you enlist an entire community to do that with you. Uh, So it's been very much an evolution of many years of research expeditions, of setting up an expedition organisation, working with the media and kind of all the ingredients that have come together into X Expedition around the world. It's a really interesting project. I think readers and and listeners of of ED, um, whether it's the website or the podcast, you know, they're sustainability professionals there. They're probably quite acutely aware of the issues of plastic in the ocean. Um, they've probably been kind of discussing it and trying to act on it before it probably hit mainstream media. That's how kind of on the pulse they are. But it sounds like this is much more about kind of getting that global educational message um, out there. Um, but I suppose that, you know, 
when when that first uh, boat took sail, was it Plymouth? I think it was. Yeah. yeah. Um, when that first kind of boat took sail, what was your kind of thinking of like, okay, the one the one kind of key aim that we want to get from this is? Um, I think for me, it's become increasingly about the people more than the science. Um, because when you go out to sea, you have a completely transformative experience. Um, you know, you get on board in this completely unfamiliar environment. You've got 14 women. You're all living on top of each other. You're sailing the boat. You're doing science. You're cooking. You're cleaning. You're no doubt getting pretty seasick at the beginning. And then you start seeing this plastic coming up in every trawl. You put the fragments on the FTIR, you start to understand what type it is and do the analysis, and then have these most incredible conversations with the rest of your teammates on board who are all there for the same reason, uh, but have very different backgrounds and very different opportunities in terms of what they can do next. And I think the more I look at this issue, the more I realize that there's not one solution that's going to solve plastic in our ocean. But the, the great news is there are literally hundreds of solutions and we need all of them. And I really believe that's how we're going to solve it. 1% here, 1% there, and we do that enough and we're going to reach 100. Um, so to do that, we need people from all those different backgrounds. And you mentioned the opportunity there. And um, so before this briefing, I read up that it's around 13% of the, uh, the kind of STEM workforce is made up um, of women. So is that the kind of reason behind really pushing for this kind of all-female crew? Was that, was that something you also wanted to kind of work on as well? The actual initial idea for women was quite a scientific one. After a few years of looking at the plastic in the ocean, discovering the fact that most of it is microplastic, these little fragments, and that it was getting into the food chain, I had a blood test to look at chemical pollutants uh, that are used in the production of plastic and um, to look if they're inside my body. And of these 35 chemicals that are banned by the United Nations because they're toxic to humans, we found 29 of them in my blood. And when I started to understand the impact of these chemicals, it turned out most of them were endocrine disruptors. They mimic our hormones and prevent those important chemical messages moving around our bodies. And so for women uh, during pregnancy, or the fact that you can actually pass these chemicals on when you give birth, I thought, wow, this is really an important issue, um, and hence wanting to tackle it with an amazing team of women. Yeah, no, that is, uh, that's, quite, that's quite severe, that is. Um, so that's definitely a good reason to, to definitely <laughs> so do that. It, it began making the unseen seem in yeah. terms of microplastics and toxics, but then, as you mentioned, women in STEM, um, women in sailing and exploration, I realised there were also many more unseens, and we had a great opportunity to celebrate fantastic female role models. Uh, in these other areas as well. And you mentioned you've already had some of those kind of great female role models on, on board as part of the, uh, the legs as well. And I know the reason this kind of conversation got set up is because um, Natasha, and I hope I pronounced this surname right, Pergel, um, the Global Sustainability Lead uh, for Innovation Services uh, Solutions at SAP is about to um, board in a week or two. She's on board right She's now. She's on board right now. Yeah. Okay, hence why she can't, <laughs> hence why she can't here. be here. Um, and so SAP, the software giant, they're going to be sharing data and insights from the expedition voyage is uh, to kind of give customers, businesses, uh, NGOs, governments, partners, the kind of insight of those solutions, making that unseen scene, as, as, as you put it, um, through their Plastics Cloud, which um, uh, our, our audience will be well aware of. We've covered that quite in depth on the website. Um, in terms of the, the kind of getting that business involvement, are there, firstly, are there any other, any other kind of notable 
uh, whether that's individuals or organisations that are, that are helping you on this expedition? There are. We've got uh, lots of sponsors, actually. So our five main sponsors are Travel Edge, a travel agency in North America, uh, Tomra, a Norwegian recycling company that designed those sensors and robotics for deposit return schemes, and the Red Ensign Group, part of the British government here in the UK. We've also got Slaughter and May Law Firm and um, the 11th Hour Racing Foundation. Um, so there's a, a lot of different players that are all kind of contributing financially, as well as many offering in-kind support around the world. And in terms of, uh, I mean, imagine it's, it's kind of very much comes down to what the individual on each other leg really resonates with on those journeys. But what are you hoping that that, that individual, as these new advocates, can kind of step back into those organisations? And, and how, how, do you, how would you advise them to start advocating for change? So it's kind of about looking at your own opportunity and I always am help, trying to help people look for that intersection point um, between their superpower, their skill, their area of expertise and the issue of plastic pollution. And so your sphere of influence really varies depending on what it is that you do. So if you were going back into a big multinational company, <laughs> then um, it might be dependent on the role that you play, whether you're in the marketing team, it might be more about storytelling. If you're in the logistics and operations team, it might be an opportunity to look at the supply chain and eliminate plastic from there. Um, if you're in products and innovation, then it might be more about saying, okay, how do we actually completely shake things up here, use new materials and completely new ways of doing things um, and so that's sort of maybe from a company perspective but if you're working more at a local council level or a, a national government level there's lots that you can do in terms of legislation um, and then we have all sorts of individuals who might be storytellers or teachers or um, someone who might be working with their local community uh, on a beach in Indonesia. You know, it's completely different depending on where you come from and we kind of celebrate the fact that um, we need to be solving it in diverse ways. And I imagine the fact that it's a global expedition changes the conversation from, from area to area. I was, I was listening to some of the um, interviews you've done uh, quite recently and you mentioned that some of the the, the people you spoke to, they didn't really understand the concept of waste and, and packaging. It was, wasn't something that was, was there for them. And I think the UK, this has become, especially around plastics, such a huge issue that it doesn't quite translate into the same issues, especially in kind of developing countries where uh, they, either, they either don't have access to that packaging or that packaging serves a really important function in terms of preservation of, of products. So um, I imagine that the, the people that are kind of joining you on, on each stage are going to have some different messages based on where, they're, where they want to try and make impact as well. Absolutely. You know, much of the world relies on plastic for hygiene and for um, making food last longer, you know, that they simply couldn't um, survive without it. Um, but as you say, there's also a big challenge between actually understanding waste. Um, a little uh, cleanup that I did on a beach in Tonga 10 years ago uh, with a bunch of kids, uh, we went out to do a beach cleanup and it was fascinating to see that they brought back all the plastic along with the coconut husks and the palm fronds and all of the organic matter as well. So there's some understanding kind of to do that. Um, and it makes you realize just how recently, you know, it was um, coconut husks and, and banana peel that they were relying on for their packaging <laughs> and that this plastic is actually very new um, and there aren't any waste management systems to deal with it. Uh, so wherever we are in the world, we all face a different part of the challenge. And ultimately, wherever we are, we're trying to get to the root cause um, of the problem, uh, but it's slightly different. And I think 
looking at it from a global perspective, but understanding the local variations is key because um, I think when you sail around the world, you quickly realise that actually we all share one ocean and pollution from one place can quickly end up somewhere else in the same way that we all share one atmosphere and carbon dioxide you produce somewhere can quickly um, affect our entire planet. And we really need a global response to this issue, um, something that trans seeds those political boundaries um, that we often kind of think within, uh, hence the need for kind of big international projects. And so the theme of this podcast is, is obviously based on International Women's Day and I mean we've seen with the, with the school climate strikes that young women all over the world are very very passionate about climate change, about plastics, about environmental protection in general. But going back to that, that personal journey you had when you realised that this was something you would stand up for, you know, what, would, what, you know, what advice would you give to your younger self or there's plenty, probably potentially hundreds and thousands of young women out there that, that you know, have, have a real kind of strong feeling about whether it's plastics or it's climate change or whatever, but, and don't quite know how to kind of get on a platform and, and, and raise their voice. What, what advice would you give to them? I think a few things. I think one, um, figure out what you're good at is absolutely key. When we're good at something and when we enjoy something, um, you, you know, it, it really sort of starts to snowball <laughs> um, and you start to really succeed. And um, perhaps actually using your voice um, in actually a spoken way isn't the right thing for everyone. Some others might be really good at writing or um, making videos or actually maybe sitting in the lab trying to come up with um, a new material that can replace plastic. You know, there's so many ways that we can make an impact. Um, so I would say really think about what you're good at and look at how you can use that superpower um, and almost trade that for experience. Um, so, funnily enough, the thing that I'm really good at is organising stuff. <laughs> and so, um, 12 years ago, when I set out, my currency for getting on board a boat to go around the world and see these amazing places was my organisational skills. Um, and so I traded that for that experience and that bought me the um, opportunities and experience that I then needed to kind of get to the next level. So that's a really way of putting it view in your, your skills as a currency that can be used as a, as a, as a way in to, to really meet new people, start having new conversations and really start to make that snowball. Exactly. And when you want to get involved with something, um, you know, track down the organisation or the person that, you know, you really admire and you really want to help them or learn from them. Um, but rather than going up and telling them what you want, tell them what you have to give. Um, and it'll come across in a much better way and um, you'll get snapped up. <laughs> okay, Emily, um, I appreciate I've kept you on this weird kind of green carpet floor for, for a bit too long <laughs> and there is a nice kind of karma bar upstairs, albeit a bit more noisy. So um, I will kind of let you go in the rest of your day, but um, I suppose you'd be good. What, what's, what's next on, on the expedition? You know, what's next for, for you? What's coming up? So next week I'm heading off to Easter Island and we'll be sailing across the South Pacific Gyre, this accumulation zone where all the plastic uh, eventually ends up, um, hopping through some uninhabited and barely inhabited atolls to see how much plastic is really there along with the rest of our scientific programme and open ocean. Um, we'll head into French Polynesia um, and then across the rest of the Pacific. And that will conclude in Australia in June. And that's really the next chunk of X expedition around the world. Um, and beyond that, there's, there's so many more partnerships that we can make and opportunities to um, leverage what we're already doing to get the message out further and to make more and more impact.
So it's a busy 2020. Yeah, I can imagine. It's, uh, <laughs> Easter Island sounds a bit better than East Grinstead, where our offices are based down near Gatwick. But um, it's, it's all for a great cause, and we'll definitely want to uh, keep in touch to see to definitely see some of those messages that, that come out of it. But Emily, thank you so much for your time today. No problem. Thank you. Right, well, thank you there um, to Emily for all of her insight and for reminding us that no matter how much of a leader you are, it is more than okay to sit on the floor and record an interview. <laughs> Um, and I'm aware we're running out of time on this episode, but we do have one more exclusive interview to bring you. And I'm afraid I don't know this that much about this one. So, Matt, would you mind taking it from here? So the next interview for this International Women's Day podcast special is none other than Dr. Abigail Stevenson, director at the Mars Global Food Safety Centre. It's a slight deviation from the sustainability professionals that we usually interview as Abigail works with a team of scientists helping to address some of the biggest global food safety issues facing Mars and the wider industry as a whole. Uh, That, of course, undoubtedly has a climate focus, uh, which I'm sure we'll be able to touch on during this chat. So, Abby, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. No, uh, thank you so much for for agreeing to take some time out of your busy schedule to talk to us. And I think it's probably worth um, starting by getting a bit of an overview as to as to your role um, at, at Mars and and what that entails, and specifically how that kind of relates into the kind of climate and su- sustainability debate that we're seeing. Sure, no problem. Um, so I'm responsible for a team of scientists based at the Mars Global Food Safety Center, located in uh, Beijing, China, actually. Um, The center opened in 2015, and we really aim to tackle some of the most significant food safety challenges, as you said, Matt, um, facing both Mars and the food industry as a whole. And the approach we're really taking through that work is a long-term focus. So we're really looking at the the new, evolving, emerging, biggest, most significant challenges that need a science and technology approach in order to help mitigate those uh, the risks, the challenges, and address them in the longer term. And really there, when we're, we're looking at um, the food safety challenges are, are inc- increasing. In, in our view, they're increasing. The challenges are ever greater because of things like population growth, um, water scarcity, Climate change is a massive contributor, and the pressures on the food supply chain as a whole. Um, you know, unforeseen weather events, drought, um, along with uh, floods. We're seeing many more um, uh, un, un, uh, you know, climate change uh, situations that we've never addressed before. And these are all increasing the pressures on the food supply chain. And under these circumstances, um, they also challenge safety and our ability as a, na- as a human population to provide enough safe food to feed people. Um, we really know today that there are around about 795 million people in the world, nearly 800 million people who don't have enough access to safe food in order to support a healthy, active life. So our aim is really by addressing these challenges to, to, in the long term, build safe, secure supply chains that deliver sustainable food to our ever-increasing population. And you said it was uh, set up in 2015, so it's been been going for uh, just around about five years now. So, so what Almost it, five years, yeah. yeah. 
So what are kind of the uh, kind of breakthrough breakthroughs that have, have kind of been achieved at the center so far that, that you'd be most proud of? I think one, we're, we're working in three areas of focus at the moment. Um, one of those is mycotoxins. And mycotoxins are toxins released by fungus when they, and molds when they contaminate foods. So here we're working on new technologies, new knowledge in order to help um, food manufacturers and suppliers, farmers to um, produce safer foods with lower contamination with mycotoxins. Mycotoxins, in particular one, aflatoxins, one group of the, the mycotoxins is highly toxic and causes liver failure and also contributes to stunting in children. And we know particularly in, in Africa, in um, places like Nepal, there are um, the populations there that consume these um, contaminated foods. It's grains like um, rice, um, corn, wheat, that are most commonly contaminated. So real staple foods. One of the areas we focused on here is building capability and working with um, the USAID, Kansas State in Nepal, we've set up a state-of-the-art lab there, sharing our expertise, knowledge, and, and methods that we use at the Global Food Safety Center, providing training and, and resources to develop a lab there to enable um, the um, scientists in Nepal to analyze foods, understand where the biggest contributors are coming from, and then working with farmers to address that. Um, so that's one area. The second area um, I'd like to mention really is microbial risk management. So how we can develop new technologies that enable us to find those foodborne pathogens faster, um, identify them more accurately so that we can um, remove that food from the, the food chain and put in measures to prevent it from recurring in the food chain. And so we're talking about um, salmonella, listeria, the, the, the most common foodborne pathogens. And here we're working with some really innovative um, technology companies like Oxford Nanopore, based here in the UK, to look at new ways of sequencing um, that enable um, that are a method that's portable, that is accurate, that is fast and quick in order to give results. And actually, we very, very recently published um, our first scientific peer-reviewed paper on exactly this topic, showing um, a very successful evaluation of this technology for the first time in the food industry. So this technology is most commonly used in um, a clinical setting, um, in hospitals, um, and for research. And this is the first time we've transferred that really innovative technology through to the food industry. Yeah, I think the uh, the role of combating disease has never been more kind of relevant with what's going on in the world right now. And um, I think food is, is definitely an important aspect of that. And obviously, we're, we're focusing on International yeah. Women's Day for, for this podcast segment. And I think at a very kind of, I suppose, puddle deep level when you when you, I suppose, look at the reflection of um, scientists in, in um, I mean, I'm mainly speaking fiction here but kind of hollywood films you, you kind of get that that stereotypical image of a of a man in a trench coat holding up a holding up yeah. a, a holding up a um test tube of sorts um, obviously that isn't the case but but in your experience what what is the kind of diversity of of your sector uh like we we've had conversations with sustainability experts 
Um, so for CSR, it's it's actually quite well balanced. Energy far less so. What's what's the kind of gender balance like uh, for for scientists? Well, certainly I can talk about um, uh, food nutrition, yeah. um, the areas that that I, I've worked in over the years, and I the, the balance is also very good there. Um, both at our Pet Nutrition Research Center, which is based here in the UK, and our Global Food Safety Center, we have um, world-class scientists that are women and have um, a long career in, in Mars and in the food sector as scientists. So I would say in, in food science, food safety, nutrition, the, the diversity is actually very good. Um, and I have, I've been in Mars now for um, 27 years. I joined Mars at our Walton Center in the UK um, as a newly qualified scientist. And I've had so many amazing opportunities to build a career here in science and technology, in um, technical communications that lever my, leverage my science and science background. And it's really enabled me to, to continue to grow and develop as a business leader with first and foremost science and technology as, as my uh, strength and my passion. And, and I, I'm very grateful to have been surrounded by inspirational leaders that have really supported my growth and development, encouraged me to, to stretch. I mean, my move to China was through conversations with some of our very senior leaders in the business who encouraged me to, to push myself beyond my comfort zone and move from the UK so I moved from a rural part of England to um, pretty much the largest city in the world. And what I've learned through that experience, both personally and professionally, is amazing. Um, you know, the, the opportunity to lead a, a global center based in China with very talented range of uh, scientists working collaboratively with some of the world's leading academic um, scientists and um, non-government organizations like the FAO and uh, the, you know, the USAID, for example, an amazing opportunity. And I've always felt encouraged as, as a women leader, woman leader in Mars to, to learn and grow and to, to take on new challenges. I've never felt that my gender has held, held me back in any way. Well, that's, that's great to hear. And you, you said 27 years in, in, in that that role as yeah. as well um so how, how did you kind of get into this area from from a younger age what was the kind of passion that, that you had that kind of pushed you towards this sector i've always had a passion for science for nature for the natural world and my parents really encouraged that from a very early age um and my my father was a dentist so he had science at his heart always and just encouraged me to be curious. Um, I then had at school, I remember, a very inspirational biology teacher who was a, la a woman, a lady, and um, she inspired me again. To, she fueled my curiosity. I, I remember a study at school looking at woodlice and environmental preferences in woodlice. <laughs> and I was always curious. My dad helped me get the woodlice from the the wood piles around um, our home and I took them into school and I guess I was always um, interested in the natural world and science at its heart. 
Then I followed a path to university, did a, a general science degree, and started looking for for jobs that would enable me to continue to to um, explore and leverage my passion for science. And that's where the role at um, the Waltham Pet, Pet Care Science Institute came up here in the UK. And so I joined Mars through their um, Global Pet um, Science Institute here in the UK. And that's where my um, passion then, then grew even further. And I took the opportunity to do a PhD in nutrition uh, together with the University College London, supported fully by Mars, which was an amazing opportunity to continue my professional development while also being able to understand the role that industry can play in science and technology as well. And we believe in Mars that you know, we're a science-led business, we're evidence-based in our decision-making, and science is at the heart of that. So being able to balance my um, you know, continued development from an academic perspective, balancing that with it, how we can apply that in industry has always been something that, that I've felt passionate about as well, doing science and then being able to actually apply it to make a difference. And whether that is in uh, making pets' lives better, a better world for pets, or whether that's about um, safe food for all, which is what we do through the Food Safety Center, the, the science at Mars has a higher purpose and a deeper meaning. And that's something that personally really inspires me. And what would you say some of the, uh, the benefits are of, of having this kind of more diverse workforce within, within the sector that you, you operate? What, what kind of, you know, what, what are the benefits that that brings? Oh, there are, there are so many. I think diversity um, of thinking, of perspective, of backgrounds, of, of cultural, cultural diversity, gender diversity, geographical diversity. When you're facing these big challenges or tackling these challenges like we are, the broader your perspective, the, the better and, and longer lasting, more enduring the, the solutions will be. And the more, um, the more questions you have, the, the broader the approach will be to solving these challenges. So we know, I mean, we have great diversity in Mars, but that said, we cannot solve these challenges on our own. Even with the, the diversity we have in Mars, we need to work collaboratively with others in order to solve these huge societal challenges. Um, so we, we have a fully collaborative approach to food safety, working together with, um, as I said before, the academics, the non-government organizations, with governments, with regulators, and industry partners too. This is really a pre-competitive space because the challenge is so great and there should be no competitive advantage to providing safe food for everybody. So we work fully collaboratively through the, the Food Safety Center. This brings that breadth of perspective and diversity that I mentioned before with all the benefits that encompasses. That's, that's brilliant to hear. And, and you mentioned earlier about how when you were younger, you just kind of got used to being curious. And I think we're seeing certainly in the climate um, sphere of debate, uh, I've kind of, and I've mentioned this a few times on this episode, this, this pipeline of, of young 
um, women, uh, whether they were the ones taking part in the school strikes, uh, kind of inspired by Greta Thunberg, or or just more interestingly, um, there, there's clearly this pipeline of young talent that wants to get involved in, in the environment or in climate in terms of job profession as well. Um, what, what kind of advice would you give to, to a young woman that's just kind of starting out, whether, whether she's kind of um, at college or university, uh, trying to get her foot through the door? Um, what, what advice would you have for her? First, first of all, and it's always been important to me, I, I'd advise anyone to follow your passion um, and then and then seek out others that share your passion other inspiring leaders um, male female different uh, different backgrounds different cultures um, and seek out those that encourage um, you to be your best and to looking for opportunities to learn and grow um, one thing that that I've always tried to do even though it's a bit uncomfortable is stretch myself, um, never constrain my, never allow myself to be constrained perhaps by my own beliefs, um, never to put myself in a box and think I'm not good enough or I'm not sure I can do that, to, to really have a, an, an attitude, I kind of, I can, I can try and do this, who can support me, who's going to help me, because nobody can, can, can do it alone, but if you surround yourself with with people who are going to encourage that stretch and be there at those times when you're not sure to to have that honest conversation and to to regroup and go again um, and my family my friends my amazing husband who's fully supported me in the move to China um, my son you know I've been very lucky to be surrounded by hugely supportive family parents who who helped you know, I was doing my PhD while I had my son, and my parents and husband were my huge support network. But they always encouraged me to to stretch, grow, um, and and they've always been right there um, together with me. They're really incredibly important to me, um, and knowing I've got their full support enables me to to stretch. So, um, only as an individual. Um, find that balance and it and it's an individual thing it it's something only only um, each one of us can know for sure what the balance looks like and what the right balance is for for any one of us and one thing i've also learned is that that changes through different stages in your life i went to china as my son went to university and i had more freedom and i could go and and do that um at different points in my life i've had to make different choices and that's okay priorities change and that's also okay that's real life Abby, that's a really um great point to finish on there i think that's applicable to anyone from all walks of life really regardless of uh, of gender so that's a really really strong point that resonated with me as well so so thank you for sharing that insight and and also for for your other answers for, for your questions today. Um, it sounds like you're an incredibly busy uh, person, so I won't keep you much longer, but it's been a pleasure talking to you today. A pleasure for me too. Thank you very much. So there you have it, four exclusive interviews, all showcasing women who are sustainability leaders in their own right, despite having super different career stories and, and remits. Um, a big thank you, of course, goes out to all of them for taking part, but I want to be cheeky and in the spirit of International Women's Day, extend a big thank you to all the women in this profession that are listening and to remind you all that now is 
a perfect time to take a step back, recognise your achievements and strategise to take them to the next level before International Women's Day 2021. And for the men listening, um, hopefully these interviews will have given you some top tips for supporting your female colleagues and championing SDG5 in your current role, your career and beyond. We'll be back in a fortnight and while I can't give too much away about the next episode, I can say the podcast calendar for the next couple of months is pretty jam-packed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I've got written down that we have a sustainable fashion special, yep. um, that our green room, which takes a deep dive into profiling sustainability leaders about their careers, calls to actions and current projects, is going to be making a triumphant return. Yeah, a big a big one as well, a big, big company that I've uh, been speaking to a while to, to get this nailed down, I'm very much looking forward to that, and it is with a, a woman sustainability leader as well watch this space um and then of course our new net zero business podcast spin-off is going to be continuing into next month um this month now where time flies when you're having fun um and beyond so watch this space and in the meantime you can subscribe to these podcasts via spotify and or itunes and you can check out our website for the latest news and views um, away from the podcast, if you can imagine that we do exist as real people and not just voices on your phone, um, we're squirrelling away to prepare for Net Zero Live, which Matt hinted at at the beginning of this episode. Taking place at the NEC in Birmingham on 19th and 20th of May, Net Zero Live is an evolution of our flagship exhibition. It is free to attend and will unite businesses, policymakers, investors, NGOs, product and solutions providers and many more around a common purpose to spark new ideas and actions on the path to a net zero carbon future. But fear not if you're not heavily involved in the emissions and climate side of things. Um, Across our four stages we'll have a number of high level sessions on social sustainability, the circular economy, nature restoration and loads more topics too. You can find the full agenda and register for a free delegate pass at netzerolive.com. But until next time, it's a goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. And a goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.